Welcome to this podcast series, Magic and Mayhem, Discover the Secrets to Creating Magnificent Books for Kids and Teens. Magic and Mayhem is a free podcast and ebook series brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. If you're interested in writing for kids and teens, join us on a journey that's set to inspire and enhance your own writing skills. Download your free Magic and Mayhem ebook at magicandmayhem.com.au. There's awesome insights from all of our authors that will give you a really good idea on the writing tips and techniques that you can incorporate in your own creative writing process. Just download your free ebook at magicandmayhem.com.au. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm founder of the Australian Writers' Centre and this episode we're bringing you Wendy Orr. Wendy is the author of the hugely popular Nims Island books, which have been turned into films, starring Jodie Foster and Bindi Irwin. She's also published more than 40 other books for children and adults. Her latest novel, Swallow's Dance, is a middle-grade adventure set in ancient Crete. It was such a joy to talk to Wendy. She's had a successful writing career for a long time now. However, as you'll hear in my chat with her, she was pretty fresh at the beginning. She didn't really know how the industry worked or how long a kid's book should be, or even if she needed to provide illustrations with a picture book text. Spoiler alert, you don't. (laughs) But she persevered and kept learning and found success along the way. There's that word we keep hearing perseverance yeah anyway enjoy the interview i think there's a lot to learn in this one so wendy thank you so much for joining us today oh what a pleasure to be here i'm so excited to talk to you now there's so many questions that i want to ask you (laughs) so i think perhaps if we can get started with before you know getting into writing the many books that you've written can you tell us did you actually want to be a writer when you were younger oh yes yes I was one of those children that uh from the time that I learned to read and write in English uh which was when I was seven um that's when I really I think decided I wanted to be a writer Mm. and I, I kept to that until I got to high school and thought oh, this is so weird, I don't think that you could, you know, really be a writer. How could somebody make a living? And I sort of put it aside for a while. And then, so what was the turning point? When did you then decide, I can actually make this a real thing? I was um, actually crossing a road with a friend going out to lunch and she said, did I tell you I've written a book? Wow. And I thought, when am I going to do that? Mm. And um, I was actually uh, doing a, a little course at the time. I was an occupational therapist, and I was just doing a, a specific course on um, on a type of test. And um, I thought I'd like to go on doing something else because, you know, I just had two kids and a job, and and you know, mm. my husband's farm. Um, <laughs> but I'd like to do something else. And when she said this, it just sort of clicked for me, and I thought I have to write. And, and I. Yeah, yeah, go on. Please go on. Well, I, I basically I send off the last assignment of this course on um, uh, Christmas Eve uh, that year, and I um, started writing on probably January twenty, probably January second. I also January first, but that's unlikely. It was probably <laughs> January second. <laughs> and what age were you at the time? Thirty-two. Okay, so at that time, did you know you were going to write? children's books or did you try adult or you know how did you make that first step I just was doing everything I, I hadn't particularly thought of children's books 
Um, but my own children were little. They were four and four and six, I think, when I started. Um, and so I was kind of steeped in children's books, and I used picture books at work. Um, but I, I started writing oh, everything under the sun, just about. <laughs> I also, this friend had actually written a Mills and Boone. Now, it wasn't actually published, but she got through to, you know, asking for the full manuscript. And mm. um, and I thought, well, that's a good idea. I could write some Mills and Boone, make a lot of money, mm. and, um, you know, then that could help pay for writing what I want to write when I find out what that is, and then I could cut down my hours at work. Mm. Um now, I'd never actually read a Mills and Boone, so the arrogance is absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and you won't believe it, they didn't want my take on their formula that sells very well. Um, <laughs> so I, my husband actually said one day, well, if you're going to... If you're going to be unsuccessful, you might as well be unsuccessful doing something you like. <laughs> so I gave up on the Mills and Boone plan. Okay. That's sort of positive, kind of. Yes, so, so I know. <laughs> I think it was kindly meant. Yes, of course. So then what was your first break then with your first book that that a publisher was interested in? Um, it was actually a picture book, of, um, Amanda's Dinosaur. And so for that first year, I experimented on all sorts of things. I did actually try one children's book because I um, I must have been coming up to 35 at that point mm-hmm. because I thought that I would, um, I would enter the Australian Vogel and yes. I would only have time to write a children's book. Uh, I, I mean, I just knew nothing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote this book, which my kids, Loved and uh, it, it didn't win this um, didn't win the Vogel amazingly enough. Um, I got a really detailed analysis with the rejection from um, Nelson Thomas Nelson, which was at that stage a trade publisher, and um, that made me think about children's books more. And then I saw this um, competition for a picture book text. And probably most of the people at the Writer's Centre already know that you don't have to draw the pictures yourself. (laughs) However, I didn't know this. Um, This was the first time I had realised that you didn't have to present it as a whole. And picture books just came fairly naturally because the kids were that age. And and so I wrote Amanda's Dinosaur and it... um, it won publication. I had to change the last line, which took me about three months. And, um, uh, but yes, it won and it was published and, um, and it wasn't actually an easy road after that. You think, wow, there you go, you know, foot in the door. But basically the editors that I worked with there both left. Oh, so, so, you know, I didn't, didn't publish anything else with Scholastic, but um, yeah, but it was my break. So when you first saw that book, do you? Re- I mean, because you've written so many books since, but do you remember the when you got the news or when you first saw it in your hands? Oh my goodness! I don't think that anybody would ever forget that first acceptance and first book. Um, the letter was. 
a rather strange letter, to be honest. Okay. Uh, it's long enough ago I'm going to sort of tell the truth about the letter. Please do. <laughs> we said something like, well, thank you for entering this competition. You know, the standard was basically pretty awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm delighted to tell you that um, you and somebody else have have won and we decided not to award the first prize outright because you have to change the ending but you know sort of good luck and congratulations I mean my husband actually opened it while I was at work so he could phone me at work the letter is all crumpled up because he was so upset at the start and then got to the the very bottom oh well we're going to publish it (laughs) How bizarre. And look, I don't think they said pretty awful, but that was pretty much what they said. Goodness. So he phoned me at work and said, you're going to be published. And a neighbor told me that he'd driven right up their driveway on still on the tractor waving this letter saying, when he's getting a book published. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's gorgeous. So you got that book published and then after that you said you didn't publish again with them, but how did things flow after that? Did Was it long um, before you got your second book? Because you said you wanted – what's interesting is that you said you wanted to become a writer at 32, then three years later it finally happened at 35. What was the next? step just so that we get a little bit of idea of the momentum well I thought that you know I would go on writing picture books you know and somehow the first book had flowed quite easily so you know oh this is easy I can do it Mm -hmm. and I started writing you know various picture book manuscripts and um, a lot of them came close but it was a period of high flux in the publishing industry Mm -hmm. So this was um, about 89. It was the first because the Man's Dinosaur was published in 88. So like one book, um, it was given a, a letter of offer with sort of a contract was going to follow from Heinemann. And then they were, I, might, I better not say the publisher's names, all right. Everybody wipe that from your ears because I don't remember who took over who. But basically one publisher said, we love this little book, however, we've just accepted one very similar. Mm. Then another publisher said, yes, we love this, we're going to send you a contract. Then <laughs> they said, we've just been taken over by this company, and there is <laughs> a book that's very similar. Oh. And so there was a lot of things like that. Yeah. Um, and I then I sent something to... Thomas Nelson, which the day I sent it changed from being a trade publisher to an educational publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually accepted quite a lot of things. Now, not all of them were published. There was a lot of upheaval there, too. Um, and But it actually gave me a little bit of an apprenticeship working with some editors, and that was very valuable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was sending out, you know, other things. And I believe that the next book that was actually accepted was Ark in the Park, which wasn't published for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. It was, Ark in the Park is 3,000 words, which, again, going back to the fact that I knew nothing about publishing, I didn't know that there were standards of length. or yeah. 
<laughs> I just wrote what I saw. Mm. So I wrote this little book and um, I sent it off and about 10 publishers said, well, it's very sweet, but it's the wrong length. Mm. And I sent it to Kathy Tasker, who had actually been the commissioning editor for mm. Amanda Dinosaur. And she was now at HarperCollins. Mm -hmm. And um, so I sent it to HarperCollins. It found its way to her. And she said, it's a lovely little book. Let's publish some books this length. She had another manuscript that was also a similar length. I don't know if it came in at the same time. It took about, oh, I think it was about five years um, in the process. All right. Um, and... Um, yeah, then she started this series of sort of highly illustrated little tiny chapter books of about 3,000 words. And quite a few publishers wrote to me after it one book of the year to say, um, we were thinking of doing some books that are about 3,000 words. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> um, so, and then that was my true break. Um, mm -hmm. Kathy Tasker was there for a number of years mm. and she published a lot of my books oh that's wonderful and of course she's one of our teachers at the Australian Writers Centre so <laughs> yeah it's great that she's she's teaching picture books and children's books and uh, so yeah that's great to hear now I would like to touch on Nim's Island which of course <laughs> is one of the books you're most well known for it, it's huge now, you, I read that when you were nine years old, a child, you wrote a book, as nine-year-olds do, and you said that it was probably what was really the first draft of Nim's Island. So can you tell us first a little bit about that, but then also when was the first draft, you know, as an adult, like the, 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 adult real, draft, yes. the real draft? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it is true. Um I, we were actually heading out to see my grandparents um, on a ferry near Vancouver Island and um, when I was nine. My mum and I are guessing that I was nine. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we went past this little tiny island and I decided I would like to run away and live on an island. And um, I don't think I was particularly unhappy or anything. It just appealed to me. Yeah, okay. And, so when we went back, we lived in the prairies, in the Canadian prairies, and so, you know, no water, no island. Um, and when we went back, I started writing this little book that I called Spring Island. And because I was very enamored of Van of Green Gables at the time, um, she ran away from an orphanage mm -hmm. and uh, to live on this island. And then a little boy ran away from his orphanage. To run, uh, and they lived on the island together until after a year or so, my interest changed and they got adopted and got horses. Mm. Um, so, so in Nim was published in 99, so I guess I started playing uh, with the idea around 97. Mm -hmm. And oh, sorry, it actually would have started. At the end of 95, because mm -hmm. Ark in the Park won Book of the Year in 95 for junior fiction. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was getting, you know, a lot of mail, as you do. And one week I got letters from two girls, as far as I know, had nothing to do with each other or, you know, weren't from the same school or anything. Mm -hmm. But they wrote kind of identical letters saying, could you please write a book about me? 
And I wrote back, you know, politely and said, well, I, I can't do that. That's not how I write. And, you know, why don't you write a book about you? <laughs> and, but, you know how it goes. You, you start playing with something. Something just strikes you and, and, and you think, well, you know, what if a child wrote to an author and the author said, well, I couldn't write a book about you because I'm a very important author. <laughs> and your life would be very boring because you're a little girl. <laughs> well, you know, but what if the little girl's life was much more interesting than the author's? Mm. And so I started thinking about it, and it was immediately obvious to me that the little girl's life was more interesting because she lived on an island. And so I started playing with that, and at the start, it was going to be done entirely in letters and journals. Mm. So it absolutely failed to come to life. <laughs> and then I really, I, I remember doing this quite consciously, remembering not so much the story I'd written, which of course was still stored in my mother's treasure drawer in Canada, um, but remembering being the feeling of being the nine-year-old who was writing that story. And I remembered some little things like, um, you know, making dishes out of mussel shells and mm -hmm. um, shells and things like that. And I think, I don't think I actually worked it out consciously then, but I, what I was tapping into was that subconscious uh, desire to be resourceful and sort of strong and brave. Mm. And, um, oh, it must have been about the 12th draft I, I went back and I wrote it as, it as it starts now, sort of in in a palm tree on an island in the middle of the wide blue sea lived a girl. And I, I remember sort of thinking that line in the morning and I went and wrote a, a substantial part of the manuscript, certainly, if mm. not all of it. Wow. And I remember thinking if, um, oh, I don't mean all at once, no, but, <laughs> but sorry. But before I got brave enough to show my publisher again, and but I remember thinking, even even in the first few pages, if this isn't right, I can't do this book. This yeah. is how it has to be. And I don't believe there was actually an awful lot of editing on it. You know, I mean, of course, it went back and forth over the you know year or so, but I, I don't remember big changes once I finally got that. Mm -mm. And um, it's it's it, did you imagine it would be as successful as it was? Oh goodness, no! As it is, yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I mean, you sort of always have hopes for your books, but um, and by that stage, I had, of course, been shortlisted three times and in one once in honor book one so so I you know I did know a bit more about the ways of the world <laughs> um but no so of course I, I hoped it would have been shortlisted which it never has been in in, in Australia yeah, it's only overseas that it's won awards <laughs> when, um, when did you find out can you remember when you found out that it was definitely going to be made into a movie? And, of course, it became the Hollywood film with Jodie Foster and Jared Butler and was very successful. Do you remember the, how that happened? Oh, strangely enough, I, I do. Um, I mean, it started with an email. And uh, what was lovely about it 
well, two things actually. One was that it was the first email I got asking for film rights. Um, And because I have a terrible feeling I probably would have agreed to anyone. Um, And and I did have, um, I believe, there were two or three requests after um, after I got Paula's letter. So Paula Major wrote to me and she wrote me the most beautiful letter. It was, it was, if nothing else had happened, it was a beautiful fan letter. Mm-hmm. You know, she'd got it out from the library for her son. Um, it was just on that edge of being a little bit hard for him to read at eight. She was just going to start him reading, but she liked it so much. She kept on reading and her daughter came in and the two fat cats and her husband who was also Canadian mm-hmm. and we lived by the sea and she she told me later you know she put in everything she could that would relate to me uh-huh. um and but I think that says a lot about the craft of storytelling you know she looked me up she, yes. said she likes the sea she's she was born in Canada you know she likes animals mm-hmm. I'm gonna build her this beautiful story of the family being captured in their house by the sea by my story mm-hmm. and then she said please no I'm writing to inquire about the film rights mm-hmm. and, and I can <laughs> yeah, I and, I, and I phoned my agent and my agent wasn't home and, and so of course I couldn't wait two minutes or anything you know I sort of emailed back immediately I said well my agent isn't home or isn't in her office, but I'm pretty sure we haven't sold the film rights, but I would remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then I forwarded it to mum and dad. I go, ah, mum and dad, look at this. Oh, wow. And so a minute later, the producer, Paula, emailed back and said, oh, I'm pretty sure the one to mum and dad wasn't to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> And I said, well, at least I didn't try. I told you I wasn't going to try to be cool. I had said, I'm not going to pretend. This is very exciting. So, so we actually became really good friends, which made the whole process um, just so much easier. Yes. And then you got such great stars in it as well. It's just well, yeah, was that I mean, surreal it, it, when you saw it on the screen? Oh, yeah. I mean, and look, the whole process was very slow because Paula Mazur was an independent producer. So she, what she was asking for there, I had no idea how far away this was from having a film. She was asking for the right to pitch it. Mm. And she actually had interest from four companies, which was phenomenal. Mm. Um, And I think so much of that is because she was so passionate about the book and we talked about the pitch a lot. Um, I wanted what was in the in in the first script um my vision was that the first time you saw alex rover the author the the shot would come in through the clouds and she's in a high-rise apartment and so the the clouds are around this high-rise so she's also on her own island Mm. and what's amazing is i always say that i have no visual imagination and I do see my books but I, I'm not you know strong on, on the, the visual part of it I don't think and as soon as I knew we were talking about a movie I just started seeing everything in <laughs> visual images and Paula told me that that image was one of the things that that took the picture over the line wow which was fabulous now the, the final script changed it but um we, she went with Walden Media, and 
I think at Christmas time we we knew that we were definitely getting it. But the day that she told me that Walter Mitty was going to make us an offer that day, um, my agent rang and said, I've just been given two tickets to see Holes at a um, sort of question and answer teacher screening and Lewis Satter was going to be there. And, of course, that had just been produced by Walden Media. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it just seemed like the most incredible omen. We went off to see this. And I was actually so nervous. I did not have the nerve to, to go up and introduce myself. I think partly because there was somebody in the audience who was a little bit spacey, let's say, and he stood up and did a long rant about how he was a writer and a screenwriter, but he didn't want to dumb himself down for Hollywood. And I just mm. thought, I just can't go up and say, look, you know, your studio is making me an offer today. <laughs> you know, I'll just sound like another nutter. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and I so regret not mm. having gone up and said hello. And everyone has said, oh, for pity's sakes, why didn't you go and introduce yourself? <laughs> Oh and the final one I'll say about that is that it then takes a long, long time before you get the green light. Mm, yes. And so basically we didn't get the green light till Jody had signed and there was a lot of stuff going on with that because Jody wanted the part mm. and she had to really, really fight for it, uh, which is yeah, bizarre. But anyway. Which is great. It was fantastic, but it was just really strange that she had to fight so hard. Mm. And there was a lot of stuff going on with all the studios. And um, and then finally, I was I was actually out at something with my agent, and Paula was trying to phone me, and I don't know what happened. I just never managed to get this phone call. I, you know, I kept trying to call her back, and I remember coming home on the train. And it's a long, we're quite a long way from town, you know, there are two hours on the train and the drive after that. And what, what is she saying? I think I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I got home and there was a message on the answering machine. And she said, it's Paula. I've got good news for you, girlfriend. Oh. And when I called her back and she said, we got the green light. And I said, I guessed. She said, how did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was, it was just so exciting, and I think partly because we worked together very closely yeah. on it. Yeah, and of course that became very successful. And now uh, there's also the sequel. How, can, can you tell us how that all came about? Um, well, Paula had wanted to. Um, uh, two option uh, Nimit C right from the start um, but it got very messy um, I just like publishers studios change heads and they have new ideas and um, the, you know the new head wasn't quite so keen on doing movies on 11 year old girls and um, <laughs> so that option was actually returned and so an Australian company uh, with Paula had some relationship with with this Australian film company, and they bought the rights and made Return to Nim's Island, which had to be quite different from Nim at Sea because the budget for Nim at Sea would have just been massive. Right. <laughs> you know, I I wrote it because it was just the story that I saw next, um, and so. 
what they did was they really remained true to Nim herself and Nim's sort of ethos and way of being. Mm. And um, when I read the final script, I said, look, it's, you know, I, I know it's not the script really from the book I wrote, but it's absolutely a story I could have written. You know, mm. it's so Nim. I was, I was really pleased with it. And by the time I saw the, the movie itself, we had a little premiere up at Australia Zoo. Mm-hmm. And because, of I, course, it starred Bindi Owen. Oh, who's just so fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, just so perfect for the part. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sitting there, I really totally forgot that this wasn't the story I'd written. You know, <laughs> it's so much my name. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and then I did write the third one, which is, it, its future is still in flux, but yeah, Rescue on Nims Island is, is out there as a book. Mm. And so now you started off as an occupational therapist and then you thought, oh, I'm going to write this book. But obviously when you f- first did your first picture book, you were still an occupational therapist, I'm assuming. <laughs> yes. At what point did you make a full transition to writing? Uh, well, I did it a bit dramatically. I don't remember. I, I don't recommend this one. I broke my neck. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, um, so, so I'm, I'm not a quadriplegic, but I did break. It wasn't a simple just uh, – it wasn't a simple break, so I had a lot of other damage. Um, and so I eventually had to give up being an OT. Yeah. Uh, and But um, <laughs> this is this – is, the symbolism here would just be too shonky to use in fiction. It took me two years to actually admit that I couldn't go back to work. Mm. I was on sort of sick leave without paying me in. Mm. Um, and um, the day that I cleaned out my office, sort of officially resigned and cleaned out my OT office, um, was the day that... Uh, the shortlist was announced, and for and leaving it to you was my first book shortlist, and that was announced. So I I actually made an appointment to see a psychologist for when I'd finished cleaning out my office, mm-hmm. uh, because I, I it was really hard, and uh, so this I couldn't drive. Of course, this friend drove me to the hospital, then drove me to the psychologist's office, and of course this was before mobile phones. This was ninety three. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, the receptionist met me and she said, your husband's been leaving messages for you. It's something about a short list. <laughs> and <laughs> that was a waste of a grief counselling appointment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so just fabulous that, uh, you know, I... I felt I could say I was a writer. Yes, yes. Now, tell us about your latest book, Dragonfly. Just for, you know, those listeners who maybe haven't read it yet, what's it about? Well, Dragonfly Song is the story of an outcast girl in ancient Greece. She lives on a small island um, and she has a... a it, it's the, this is the only place where it sort of verges into a, bit of, a little bit of fantasy. She has an ability to call snakes in particular, but about other animals as well, um, sometimes just mentally because through trauma she is mute. Mm. 
but the singing sometimes so sometimes she does communicate mentally and sometimes the singing breaks through it's it's very limited it really only happens to her in times of stress she doesn't have this sort of constant communication with animals mm. um, her life is so terrible that she really volunteers to go as one of the tribute that this island pays to Crete where drawing on the story of Theseus and the Minotaur where the um, seven youths and seven maidens were taken from Athens as tribute to be fed to the Minotaur mm. the sort of bull-headed man-beast um, uh, these I've, I've decided that if Crete took tribute from one place, it probably took it from anywhere that they, that the sort of Cretan navy ruled. And um, so I've decided that the tribute is actually trained up to be bull leapers. In, in the famous fresco from Knossos in, in Crete of a girl and two young men leaping over the back of a bull. And this is a motif that's repeated over and over in, in Cretan, in Minoan sculpture and jewellery and everything. Uh, it was obviously very significant. And, um, and so I decide she becomes one of the tribute and becomes a bull leaper in Crete. So I mean, it, was a, it, it is an unusual book, I, I admit, and it's written partly in free verse because it sort of really decided it wanted to be, and I decided that it was too complex to be written entirely in free verse, so I mixed, I mixed free verse and, um, uh, and prose. Mm. And so when you think of your – before you start writing your books – do you just start with a premise or with, for example, Dragonfly, um, did you already map out what the whole story before you started writing? How do you approach your writing process? I map a lot more than I used to. Mm. Um, I used to be afraid that mapping a story out would uh, really just sort of kill the magic or something. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that I wrote one one manuscript, and I actually don't remember what it was, but that I felt that I had done that, that I had really killed it. Oh. Um, and But I've realized now that I do actually plan quite a lot mentally. Mm-hmm. And, and this this was, you know, quite a complex book. Well, I, And, yeah, I've written other ones that are complex, actually. Um, I think I have to have a pretty good idea of the thread. Um, so... I really knew. I really knew. I think the whole story pretty well by the right. time I started writing it. I did start it five years earlier. Oh. And then I put it aside for rescue on Nim's Island. Mm. Um, and I, I wasn't completely sure I had the tone the way I wanted, and that was partly because I kept hearing it in verse and kept transposing it into prose, and. So when I started again this time, I had one go again, and then I thought, no, I'm going. To, that was when I decided I would give up and and just do it the way that I wanted to. Um, but this one was the most thorough plan that I'd made for a first draft, and that was partly because I was being rather slow with it. And um, my editor said, well, do you know how about 
say, August for, you know, showing us your whole first draft. Mm. Is that possible? Mm. And I think I felt like I had about five years worth of first draft to write still. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and I outlined all the scenes that needed to happen and and how many days. Wow. <laughs> um, but the other thing that I did that I've never done before was usually I've discussed – well, usually I've actually written the whole book before – I've shown it to the publisher, but I've often talked about it with my editor. Yeah. And so sometimes it's contracted before I've finished. And yeah. um, But we talked about this one quite a bit, and she said, well, could you write me just a little blurb to take to the publishing meeting? She said, you know, don't, don't spend more than an hour on it. So I took three days, and <laughs> I wrote what was way too long, you know, for a synopsis to hand in to a publisher. Yeah. Um, but that is the luxury that... I was working with the editor who's been thinking about this story with me four or five years before this. And um, so I sent her the whole three pages and and she presented something neater, I presume. But I know, surprise, surprise, I couldn't believe how useful it was to write that synopsis. Mm. Um, But I do think the part of it was because, as I said, it had been in my head for so long. Yes, Um, yes. And... But even as I wrote the synopsis, the reason it took me so long to write, I remember coming up to, you know, as I was describing the ending or near the ending, and I thought, that's not going to work at all. <sighs> but until I actually wrote that down, yeah, um, I, I hadn't seen it. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I am, the, I mean, the new one that I'm starting now um, I'm, do, I'm doing sort of a bit of alternately sort of starting the beginning and then and making and making the plans. What can um, you what can you tell us about the new one? The, about your next one? The next one it, it's set in in pretty much the same world as Dragonfly Song. It's actually two hundred years earlier. Oh, um, Dragonfly Song is set in, in about fourteen fifty mm-hmm. um, BCE, and um, this next one whose title I don't know, um, I've been calling it Saffron, which is no longer the name of the girl, so mm. it really doesn't make much sense at all. Um, and it's set in 1625 BCE, uh, which is the time that the Santorini volcano exploded. Um, and I, I went to Crete and Santorini and did some did some research and actually have, ha- have had to slightly change my synopsis because of that because the very latest research has changed some things quite significantly mm-hmm. um about yes it, it, it will be the main character will be a girl again and um it, it won't have i don't i don't believe it's going to have that little touch of fantasy that dragonfly song had right um but who knows? Do you typically only work on one book at a time, or do you are you editing while one book while you're writing another book? Is there a crossover? I've usually had a crossover, and Dragonfly Song was so all-consuming. I didn't do anything else 
Right, yeah. Um, uh, which means uh, that I also don't have anything else to edit now as I work on this new one. So this one um, will will also end up being like that. Um, and and well, when when when's it out? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure. I, I believe we'll be aiming it at July. 2018. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. Because I'm just, I'm just starting. Okay. I'm a and, very slow writer. And so, finally, what's your um, what would your advice be for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day? You know, hope to make the change, maybe from being a occupational therapist or something else, <laughs> and moving into writing. Well, okay. Some of my advice is a little bit contrary. I think. That having, if you can work part time and have some form of outside income, mm. I think that can actually help your writing, because to write anything really good, you have to you, ha- you have to be prepared to fail badly. Right. Um, and because it, because you have to experiment. Mm. Now, I mean, there's there are lots of people who you know, certainly make much more money than I do, sell many more books, and they do not take this advice. And they, you know, have honed what they want to do, and they do that. Mm. So it's it's a personal thing. But I believe that you want to go on experimenting. I mean, Dragonfly Song was a huge risk. Mm. You know, it was very different what I'd done before. Um, And... But it was something I just felt I really had to do. Mm. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I do believe that a little bit of outside income so that you can write what you want. I mean, failure is horrible. You know, you pour your heart and soul into a book and it, <laughs> it's, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. But you have to be prepared to risk it. And so, I, I, yeah, that is something I believe. I do think that the other thing about, you know, maybe working two or three days of work uh, a week also gives you some social interaction. Yes, of course. Um, so, you know, which, which matters. Um, so I think my other advice, you know, really is sort of leading on from that. You know, I do try and do what you really want. Uh, I mean, look, it's a good idea to learn more than I did at the start, but, um, you know, as I said, I knew nothing. But we lived, you know, we lived on a farm. I was I was working. Um, I had no, no means of, you know, going to Melbourne regularly or, you know, yeah. meeting writers or anything. Um, and that world is quite different now where things are online and, yeah. you know, things like this. So certainly you do want to learn as much as you can about the craft, the craft and the business. Yeah, for sure, without a doubt. But I like um, what you say. You do have to experiment, and I think that's so true, and uh, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's something that you need to explore and hone. So um, thank you so much for sharing your story and your, and your insights into the world of writing today, Wendy. Really appreciate it. Oh, well, it was fun. I never quite know what I'm going to come up with till I say it. So <laughs> it was very Very interesting hearing your questions. That was awesome. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. 
Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step-by-step -step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book success. You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how ebooks and audiobooks will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash publishing. That's writercentercomau slash publishing. How fascinating that Wendy says to try to keep working when you're writing. I think it's true that not having to rely on your writing income means you can take more risks. We've heard some authors say that they quit their jobs to pursue their writing dreams, but they've usually had at least a little bit of success or were very sure about their voice and style. I mean, for most people, it's not even an option anyway. You have to pay your bills. But there is something in that idea of being around people and maintaining social interactions rather than just locking yourself away for months at a time when you're working on a manuscript. You've been listening to Magic and Mayhem. If you want to find your own writing community and perhaps the tribe that's just for you, go to writercentre.com.au and sign up to our weekly newsletter. That's writercentre.com.au. And remember, with the newsletter, you can always just hit reply at any time and I will be at the other end. Thanks for listening.